0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, January 28, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. It took a Dwight Eisenhower to warn the United States about the dangers of a powerful, permanent arms industry operating in conjunction with the U.S. military and the U.S. Congress. Susan Eisenhower is chairman emeritus of the Eisenhower Institute and the granddaughter of Dwight Eisenhower. She presented the introductory remarks at the Cato Conference, The Military-Industrial Complex at 50, assessing the meaning and impact of Eisenhower's farewell address held earlier this month. Uh, Certain things about the speech have now become known that weren't before. It's one of those um, amazing stories about how to be careful with what's in your garage. It turns out that the son of uh, speechwriter Malcolm Moose was um, moving the lawnmower uh, to a different part of the garage and discovered five boxes Uh, left from his uh, father's life. His wife said it's time to clean it up and get it out. And discovered in these five boxes were Malcolm Moose's notes about the crafting of the farewell address. And this collection was given to the Eisenhower Library. Uh, Many of those documents were uh, just recently released. We know that uh, Eisenhower had been planning to give this speech for a long time. It was not the afterthought that many historians had suspected. It was a uh, very deliberate speech that uh, Eisenhower was planning to give. Um, he played a, a critical role in the, the crafting of this. As a matter of fact, Malcolm Moose later told my father that uh, uh, the president was the architect. We were simply the carpenters. Um, and uh, you know, for anybody who knows the way Eisenhower wrote, you can hear his phraseology uh, throughout this speech. Uh, in any case, it is a reflection of an eight year career. Uh, To me, I think the fascinating thing is, is that uh, the farewell address is really a bookend uh, to the first major um, speech he gave of his presidency, which was called A Chance for Peace. This was given in 1953, just after the death of Joseph Stalin. In any case, these two speeches, the most important of which we are marking uh, on the 17th of January, Uh, really um, underscore the transformational times in which Dwight Eisenhower served as president. And I think one of the reasons we're here today to discuss its uh, relevance is there is a contemporary resonance to this speech because we are today also living in transformational times. These transformational times are actually in some ways uh, not that different, except that I think it would be fair to say that the United States is not in as strong a position as it was in 1953. After all, in 1953, even though uh, money was constrained, the United States was the world's largest creditor nation, and we were really the country that emerged uh, from World War II uh, as preeminent globally. Uh, today, um, we have uh, many rapid changes in technology as they did back in the 1950s. The United States today is changing its position on the world stage, either voluntarily or involuntarily, but we feel that those changes are underway. Again today we've got economic constraints the way we did in the 1950s as I just mentioned, but. Uh, at a slightly disadvantaged situation. Uh, And we have uh, changing views about threat assessments. That's exactly uh, one of the themes of uh, these two bookend speeches of the Eisenhower era. Um, We have a set of changing moral values. Uh, Eisenhower observes this. Um, as he gives his speech, and and frankly, there's also a a very radical, changing way in which we communicate. Uh, Back in the 1950s, television was the new technology. Every president uh, from Eisenhower onward had to uh, master the usage of this new medium. Today of course we speak a lot about the internet and of course the blogosphere, which has really changed so many things. So if we're to take ourselves back to 1953 for a minute, uh, that was an extraordinary year. It was a game changer in many ways because of the death of uh, Joseph Stalin. And then in August of 1953, uh, the hydrogen bomb was tested by the Soviet Union, which broke the U.S. monopoly on this uh, this fearsome weapon. It's rather interesting that Eisenhower, despite um, these uh, uh, important changes... Uh, was really um, willing, able, and politically courageous enough uh, to link defense spending uh, with domestic spending. Uh, I would challenge any political leader today uh, to try and draw equivalents as Eisenhower did in his Chance for Peace speech. He said, quote, The world in arms is not spending money alone. It's spending the sweat of its labors, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children, The cost of one heavy bomber is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000 population. We pay for a single fighter with a half a million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. This is not a way of life at all in any true sense. Under the, threat, uh, under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. Well, if this isn't relevant from a contemporary point of view, I don't know what is, as we have uh, just seen some extraordinary uh, figures of what the defense security complex, we could call it that today, uh, is spending. Since uh, 2001, these expenditures have risen by 119 percent, and, of course, um, uh, discussion about how we're going to rein in some of these costs are very much uh, on our agenda today. Uh, Let me just close by saying um, something about uh, transformational times and then uh, an observation about transformational leadership. Uh, I believe that Dwight Eisenhower was a transformational leader uh, with uh, a significant amount of political courage. Frankly, to put it in the popular vernacular, this guy had guts. Uh, you see some uh, reference to it in his farewell address. Uh, the original film is all business all the time. It's said in, it's spoken in a very uh, somber, very serious way. Uh, but he did have political courage. We could uh, go into that if the seminar today were on Dwight Eisenhower, which it is not. Uh, but I would point to any number of decisions, including Uh, uh, the handling of the Suez crisis just before uh, the election of his second term. Uh, This was uh, uh, something that was so potentially controversial that he figured that he might even uh, not be elected for taking a decision like that, but was uh, prepared. Uh, We need to... uh, Uh, only mention, of course, the uh, imposition of federal troops in Little Rock in 1957. These were tough decisions by somebody uh, who I I believe in his own frame of reference would say that he was putting America first. One of the um, critical parts of the farewell address is his references to bipartisanship. It is rather amazing with the Democratic Congress that this Republican president Um, managed to get 80% of his legislative uh, agenda through Congress and managed, despite the ramp up during the Cold War of military spending, managed to balance the budget three times in eight years, which was the Cold War record. Um, In any case, um, we uh, today uh, will mark uh, this speech that uh, raises a number of very important and intriguing issues, like the military-industrial complex, also, I would say the uh, scientific technological elite, which is another idea that Eisenhower advances. Uh, but there are certain parts of this speech that I, I like because of this changing environment in which uh, he was addressing the public. Uh, he was worried about a changing uh, American values. Americans by 1961 were uh, uh, newly prosperous. Uh, there was a, um, a new television culture that was emerging. Americans were uh, increasingly uh, bitten by the desire for the good life, uh, and Eisenhower uh, worried about uh, these values. Uh, he linked in this speech, as he did many times during his presidency, uh, defense spending or, or our defense posture with our economic health and what he called a third pillar, which was uh, he referred to as spiritual. In fact, I think I would interpret that as our moral authority. Uh, in any case, in his speech, and I just mentioned one wonderful example, uh, he was worried about how America would project itself as it emerged as the global leader. Um, imagine um, how useful it would have been after 9-11 if we'd had a president say, quote, Any failure failure traceable to arrogance or lack of comprehension or readiness to sacrifice would inflict upon us grievous hurt both home and abroad. That speech is full of wonderful little side nuggets like that that tell us a lot about how we should think about who we are in these changing times. And so let me close by saying that as a member of the Eisenhower family, it's deeply gratifying that uh, perhaps among his biggest legacies, are these two speeches uh, that I mentioned. The fact that uh, an idea uh, and a set of ideas that he advanced 50 years ago could still serve as a platform for debate today uh, is indeed um, a wonderful thing. Uh, I'd like to just say I knew my grandfather very well. I knew this even as a kid. He was playing for the long game. How many times in his speeches does he mention his grandchildren? And of course, I'm one of them, but we're all one of them. We are the grandchildren of that generation. Eisenhower was playing for the long game so much that I discovered, to my great distress, that he uh, put a time capsule in his house at Gettysburg. It's buried in one of the walls, and to my distress, it's not to be opened until uh, 2056 which means that I'm long gone, doesn't seem fair, does it? Uh, But this is so Eisenhower, to be talking to generations still to come. Only in this time frame, it's not 50 years, it'll be 100. Thank you. Susan Eisenhower is Chairman Emeritus of the Eisenhower Institute and the granddaughter of Dwight Eisenhower. You can watch the full conference at our website, cato.org.